Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the U.S. Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This episode is about the trade policy of one of the biggest countries in the world. Not China, not India, but Indonesia. We're going to talk to Mari Pangestu. Mari is an economist and professor at the University of Indonesia, and she was also Indonesia's Minister of Trade from 2004 to 2011. Before we dive in, there are a few things listeners should know since we haven't spoken about Indonesia that much before. Indonesia's big. Ranked by population, it's the fourth largest country in the world. But on average, Indonesia's not that rich. Average income per person is only around $3,500 a year. Very fun fact for Trade Talks listeners is that Indonesia is involved in some pretty big trade deals. It's a member of the biggest one, of course, the World Trade Organization. It's also a member of the ASEAN Free Trade Area, which is a deal between 10 Southeast Asian countries. And it's involved in the negotiations of the RCEP, or the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. That's an attempt to get an even bigger trade deal between the ASEAN members and six other countries, including Japan, China, India, Australia, New Zealand, and South Korea. Mari, hello. Hello. Thanks so much for being here. What do Trade Talks listeners need to know about Indonesia to, to understand the drivers of its trade policy? Basically, Indonesia has been a trading nation for a long time. We used to have spices. We used to be called the Spice Island. That's why we were colonized for our spices. Uh, and then uh, later on, it's the commodities. It's the rubber, the copra. You know, and in modern Indonesia in the 70s and 80s, it was oil. Yeah. So we have always been blessed. In one way, we always say blessed and then cursed. <laughs> blessed because we have commodities. Uh, and, and we had the, when the oil prices went up in the 70s, we had a huge oil boom. So 80% of our uh, foreign exchange revenues, as well as our budget, uh, was coming from oil. So very dependent on oil. And then we had rather complex uh, protection structure, as well as exchange rate regimes uh, that were very complex. Uh, and then uh, we had the collapse of the oil prices. And that led to a series of reforms and opening up. There was a recognition that we have to diversify away from oil. I think one of the spectacular reforms we did was the customs reform. Prior to that, the customs was considered very corrupt, very non-transparent. The, the technocrats at the time recommended to the president it's very difficult to change the customs. You should just close it down and bring in SGS, which is a Swiss Swiss surveyor company, private company. So uh, we just told the customs, go home, don't come back to work tomorrow. And then they were replaced by SGS. And that was one of the really important policy reforms that led to a, a surge of export-oriented manufacturing, investments um, that allowed us to uh, move away and be diversified away from oil. At that time, uh, we were considered one of the Asian miracle countries uh, following the export-oriented industrialization. So tariffs are falling. This is the 1980s. Was there any pushback within Indonesia? Uh, yes, the tariffs fell. Uh, there was resistance, uh, but I think it's, it's the, the classic story of the political economy of reforms. The exporters, once they realized the benefits from exports, uh, actually won, won the day. And we also had, um, I guess, technocrats in charge who who saw the benefits of, you know, doing all the classic things that we read in, in textbooks of how to do tariff reform, which was not just bringing it down, but making it uniform. So 
with the exception of agriculture, which is the case for, for most all countries, Indonesia gets rid of most of its tariff peaks or these really high duties, but that are only applied on certain products. And Indonesia ends up with a relatively low and uniform level of tariffs. Okay, so we have these reforms. It's unilateral trade liberalization. Let's talk about Indonesia's trade deals. I think I'm right in saying that Indonesia had been pretty reluctant to make international commitments to cut tariffs. So tell us about what happened in 1991 when Indonesia joined this ASEAN free trade area. The ASEAN free trade area, uh, or the Association of Southeast Asian Nations free trade area, was the beginning of us having to reduce tariffs and committing to it and locking it in, uh, going to zero for intra-ASEAN trade. So that was the beginning. And it was, the idea was developed or conceptualized as, well, you know, someday we're going to have to integrate with the world economy. Let's start by practicing with each other, with countries that probably we can compete with, you know. So that, that was kind of the idea. And then so you kind of build confidence towards uh, opening up. And, and I guess the ASEAN experiment, I would say, worked well because what we committed in our ASEAN agreement, actually, in the end, we made it MFN. Many of the ASEAN countries actually made it MFN rather than, than just for ASEAN, at least on the tariff side. Uh, and then uh, we had the WTO. And we were not very active at all in the WTO. You know, we participated in the Uruguay round. And I think a number of the commitments that were in the WTO, such as local content, the whole tariff binding and tariff reduction program and so on, I think that that framed your commitments and locked in your commitments. And we had a very famous case. I don't know whether you know this. We, we may have been one of the first cases in dispute settlement. We had a national car case, uh, which was a blatant violation of the most sacred principle of the WTO, which is non-discrimination and MFN, where one of the sons of the president at the time, Suharto, he wanted to create a national car with a, with a Korean, uh, with Kia. And they created this national car, and they were allowed to bring in fully built-up Kia at zero tariff. So uh, the Japanese, the Toyota, who were already there for 20 years and already assembling cars, of course, they protested. So they brought Indonesia to the WTO. And needless to say, we lost the case. And I think that was an important lesson uh, learned. At the time, I still remember the all the ministers were cautioning the president, look, this is going to get us into trouble. We just entered into the WTO, blah, blah, blah. In the end, it was kind of the WTO rule that was able to to uh, address political economy vested interest issue. Okay, so Indonesia's in the WTO, things are going great, and then 1997 hits, the Asian financial crisis. What happened? What happened was uh, we li liberalized the financial sector, you know, banking, capital markets, without the necessary prudential regulations or institutions to uh, regulate the prudential regulations in place. So it was like a missequencing uh, of the reforms in the financial sector. So that that's kind of the story. And uh, and then we, we went on the uh, IMF program. If you just go back a little bit to the story before the financial crisis, we were doing great until about 93, 94. But then in in the last few years before the financial crisis, what happened was cronyism and uh, nepotism kind of crept in, uh, where a lot of uh, the non-tariff measures started coming back in. Import licensing with monopolies for import of this and that, and, and the monopolies were given to the president's various children. So that 
were all were uh, eliminated with the IMF program. And we also had to bring down our tariffs. And we had to uh, eliminate, I guess, almost all of the import restrictions, including on the import of rice, which has always been a very sensitive issue. And it was actually the, the first time that the price of rice was very stable. I have the numbers to show you that. After two or three years, when we went off the IMF program, things came back. Uh, again, where an, uh, the state trading company is the one that's importing the rice, and the price of rice is not not such not so stable. Let's say. Let's fast forward to two thousand and four, when you became Indonesia's trade minister. What was top of your agenda then? Top of my agenda was trade reforms. I mean, of course, a lot had been done under the IMF program, but actually, what happened uh, after we went off the IMF program? And the time I became minister, we, we called it creeping protectionism, had come back, you know, uh, in, in the form of uh, import licensing, non-tariff measures, a lot of regulations that were not very transparent. So my first task, uh, I felt, was to to just make everything more transparent, uh, do a lot of deregulation on tariffs. Actually, on tariffs, we were a little bit more disciplined because we actually uh, had a good finance minister because tariffs comes under finance minister in a way. Uh, he actually continued the IMF program and had this program of tariff reduction as well as making tariff more uniform, uh, fixed up the anti-dumping uh, process. Actually, I think he was very against uh, anti-dumping. He was a, he was very much a technocrat. Uh, he didn't like anti-dumping duties. He thought he saw it as a disguise protection. At least on that point, I felt that, you know, there were cases where, valid cases where you, you could uh, do, uh, as long as you did your investigation properly. So I actually also focused a lot on that to make sure that we had we had the capacity uh, to do the investigation and, and use the trade remedies properly. So, you know, I think that was really uppermost in my mind and also uh, expanding our regional uh, agreements. Uh, I negotiated our first bilateral agreement with Japan <laughs> and uh, subsequent to that, actually, we I negotiated all the ASEAN plus one uh, free trade agreements with China, uh, Japan, Korea, uh, India, India, oh my God, India, <laughs> Australia and New Zealand, uh, and then finally RCEP. Yeah. Let's talk about India, not a country known for its enthusiasm for doing trade deals. What was that negotiation like? Well, it wasn't the easiest one and it wasn't the, 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 the best one that we, we could uh, have had to say as an experience because, and they were the last one actually to conclude. And I would say they were the least ambitious out of all the uh, ASEAN plus ones that we did uh, and the most difficult uh, in the end because, you know, we had kind of this process, nice process going on, starting with China and then Japan uh, and then Korea and then Australia and New Zealand, where they, they kind of followed the fact that, you know, we want a, a comprehensive trade in goods agreement, which meant 90% or above. Uh, and in the case of ASEAN, by then, we all, it was already zero. Uh, and in all the other agreements, it was actually above 90 the 90% really meant the coverage of the tariff lines, so the very comprehensive coverage if you're talking about 90%. And in fact, with Australia and New Zealand, it was 99%. With India, it was a real like pulling teeth out, right? To get them to agree on a high number was was a, a big struggle. In the end, uh, we, we, we did get 80%. And the other thing that happened was starting with the ASEAN Free Trade Agreement back in the 90s, we had agreed that uh, liberal rules of origin were very important because we, we are developing countries. It's it, it's an ad, both an administrative issue uh, to make it simpler to use as well as that, you know, you don't want 
too many complications in the rules of origin. We had a very simple 40% value-added uh, rule of origin. Then the Indians complicated it by making different measures for different products, uh, and it was a very long and complicated uh, negotiations. Uh, in the end, uh, I would say it was not, standard-wise, it was not the best agreement compared to the other agreements. But anyway, uh, <laughs> because we wanted to complete the negotiations, we completed it. And they also were very difficult in the services negotiations. So they, they, they always have this position where they're very, they give very, very low on the goods, but they wanted the sky on services. So we had another uh, sets of issues in negotiating the services. And they also wanted uh, uh, freedom of movement of professionals, of, of people working in services, to be very, very open and very liberal. And that was very hard for the, for the other ASEAN countries. Can we talk a bit about China trade relations? What was the effect of China's entry into the world trading system on Indonesia? Obviously, it was increased competition. And, and you feel it immediately because of the textiles, that the elimination of the textile quota, uh, which was in process up to 2005, we definitely felt it because we immediately had to deal with competition with China. Uh, and we did lose a lot of market share in our major markets. But on the other hand, China was also growing. And especially after ar around 2004 onwards, their demand for commodities especially like coal, minerals, and uh, palm oil for cooking oil. That went up tremendously, as well as rubber, rubber products, which is something else they import that's related to tires and, and so on. So it was always this kind of relationship where, uh, you, on the one hand, uh, you're facing increased competition, but on the other hand, you're also uh, seeing the growth in a very large market. When President Donald Trump pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. One of the, the things that one sometimes read was that this seeded global leadership, and look, there's this China-led trade deal uh, called the RCEP that is now going to swoop in and, and you know, show up the, the Trump administration. I'm not sure that's a, an, a fair representation either of history or, or what's happened since then. So could you tell us a bit more about the birth of, of RCEP? Yes, uh, gladly, because I always get very annoyed also when they say it's a China-led uh, initiative because it, it, it's not, you know, it was an ASEAN-led initiative. Uh, so after we had completed the negotiation with our six dialogue partners with the uh, and having the ASEAN plus one free trade agreements and they had already progressed a number of years uh, to the point where actually we had free trade uh, on a large percentage of the products. Then came the idea that we should consolidate these five uh, FTAs, ASEAN plus one FTAs. And there was this debate going on, should we do it ASEAN plus three just with Japan, Korea and uh, China or should we do it with all six including India, Australia, and New Zealand. And Japan had one view, China had one view. And so ASEAN said, well, this, is, this should be ASEAN-led. This should be central. Uh, the central part of the component is the ASEAN because you, you all have FTAs with ASEAN. So it should be ASEAN-led. So we, we decided that in 2011, Indonesia as the chair of ASEAN, uh, and I myself then was still the trade minister, we devised 
the principles, if you like, of the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership uh, of East Asia to be, it, it doesn't have to be three or six, it can actually be five, it can be six, it can actually be more than six because it's not confined to the FTA partners that you have now. So we had this kind of open accession principle. And the other thing that we introduced was a ratcheting up principle, that if, you, if you're going to consolidate five agreements, you should ratchet up to the best agreement, the most liberal rules of origin, the most comprehensive coverage of tariff lines and so on and so forth. So that, those were the principles, but in, in, in implementation and negotiation, it may not have gone that way yet. Can you tell us why the RCEP negotiations don't seem to be making that much progress? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, not since I'm not a negotiator anymore, maybe. <laughs> but I, I think it's it's. I think that there are a couple of issues. Uh, one is uh, that China India issue. So the fact that you have bilateral agreements between all five with ASEAN, that's that's already uh, making them comfortable on that level. But the fact that the five. Uh, a lot of the five don't have uh, bilateral agreements between each other. So uh, there is a fear, say, from India that they're going to be flooded by Chinese goods, uh, that kind of thing. I think we have to be realistic and have different tracks, perhaps, where uh, some tracks can be slower than others. But we should at least try to maintain a minimum level of, of comprehensive what we mean by comprehensive coverage, and it shouldn't be too low, right? And that we should also address services. Again, on services, I think India wants to have a much more ambitious uh, goal on services, including the movement of professionals. That would be another, finding the balance on that one. And some of, uh, you know, we have this strange situation where a number of the, uh, of the members of the RCEP are also members of CPTPP. Uh, and they want a higher ambition uh, in line with what they've agreed on in the CPTPP. And our line is that, well, okay, uh, you know, this is not the end of the negotiations. This is a living agreement that you, uh, we, can, we, we can build in review processes and, ex and, and uh, to, to go towards a more ambitious outcome, maybe in two or three years' time, but not now. Let's finish the negotiations now. Let's not add new ambition, new issues at this point in time. Let's just finish the negotiations this year because... I do think we need really to send the message to the to the world that in, in this great uncertainty that we are facing on trade negotiations and, and openness, that this part of the world is continuing the process of opening up. And, and uh, while some may criticize it as being less ambitious, uh, it's a process. You don't look at it as an end game or an end point. It's a process. There will be acceleration. There will be continuation, which is exactly what happened with the ASEAN Free Trade Agreement, actually. It started out with a rather low ambition, and then it was accelerated, then it was expanded, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's, it is perhaps the difference between the Asian way and kind of the CPTPP, very uh, structured legal document. Uh, this is a long debate, by the way, uh, from uh, two or three decades ago about the differences in, in free, uh, negotiations and, and free trade agreements between Asia and non-Asia. You've talked a little already about where Indonesia sits relative to China with its trade. But how about the trade war, the U.S.-China trade conflict that's going on right now? How is all this being seen from Indonesia's perspective? Uh, first, that the, un the whole uncertainty of the trade war is causing uh, the global economy to slow down. Uh, and if the tariffs are imposed on China, we everybody uh, is foreseeing a slowdown in the economy of China. And that's 
most likely to hurt Indonesia the most because uh, we are already feeling it, the softening of the commodity prices, the lowering of commodity demand, and that's going to get worse, right? So this is the number one worry uh, in, in general. Uh, we also at the same time see opportunity to the to the extent that uh, these goods are going to be uh, affected by tariffs. There, there's an opportunity for Indonesia to also uh, have some of the trade diversion uh, from China to Indonesia, as it's already beginning to happen. I mean, we, we have anecdotal evidence of uh, furniture exports uh, coming into the U.S., which went up uh, recently, uh, or garment exports or footwear exports. And it's not just Indonesia, but uh, the other Southeast Asian countries like Vietnam. Uh, so there's the potential for some trade diversion as well as investment relocation. Where, but I think investment relocation uh, in, in the way that sourcing and uh, multinational companies or companies that are doing the sourcing are going to diversify their sources away from China. I think that was already happening even before the trade war because of the increased costs of China. Uh, and But I think this may be accelerated, right? So this is uh, an opportunity for Indonesia, but Indonesia also has to be ready for it uh, in terms of the competitiveness. It's, it's, it's probably a good way to push for our own reforms uh, whether it's the rigidity of our labor laws or the uh, logistics infrastructure, which is not as efficient as it should be, focus on exports. Because uh, we, one thing we didn't mention earlier, we, we kind of had a another second boom of commodities because China-led and India-led demand commodities between 2004 to the time of the Asian of the global financial crisis, where again, you know, we suffered from too much commodity contributing to our exports compared to non-commodity products. So we are in a position where we do have to increase the competitiveness of our manufactured products. And maybe this is a good time for that. So that's Indonesia and China. But let's talk about Indonesia and the US. Indonesia does currently benefit from the US generalized system of preferences or the GSP. So that's this program for poorer countries that get zero tariffs to help with their development. But America also has a trade deficit with Indonesia, right? Uh, Indonesia is number 15 on the trade deficit list uh, with the U.S., even though it's only like 1.7% contribution. You know, it's a $13 billion and about 1.7% uh, contribution. And we did have to submit a report uh, back in 2017. And even though we argued that if you include trade in services, you, you actually have a surplus with us. That didn't really uh, go very far. And in the subsequent thing that happened was that they actually actually reviewing our GSP, you know, related to, to that, uh, what we are, we are, Indonesia is undergoing uh, a, a GSP review uh, right now. And as we all know, uh, Turkey has lost its GSP, Thailand is also under review, and it is being uh, linked to unilateral requests from the US. And this is, I think, more worrying that you have to deal in a world where uh, the requests uh, are being made unilaterally. You have to think about it. You know, is this GSP worth it for me to make the changes that the U.S. is requiring? So Indonesia is currently being reviewed for its GSP. We, it's about, it's worth about two point six billion dollars, which is around ten percent of our exports uh, to the U.S. I think we are number three or four receiver of GSP after India and uh, Thailand. Uh, and Turkey. 
we, we have to think seriously because the demands being made uh, to Indonesia, uh, as you can guess, it's to do with IPR issues, with patent laws. It is to do with making sure uh, U.S. companies are having market access and fair competition in our market. Uh, it has to do with uh, national payment gateway. Uh, it has to do with localization of servers. Uh, and so I think these are the issues that Indonesia is facing. And I would say that if you end up uh, having a diversification of markets, uh, a sourcing, I should say, uh, of imports into the U.S., if you start having an increase in your exports going to the U.S., you're probably going to be even more uh, under the microscope uh, and, and face other requests from the U.S. So I think what's most worrying is the fact that this is not just about trade and tariffs. It's, it's how uh, the carrot, in this case the carrot is the GSP, uh, and then there's the stick. If you want the carrot, you have to do A, B, C, D, E. And is that is that how our, is that the world that the kind of world we're going to face? And if we if we have to accept it and we don't feel that it's not fair, uh, we can't go to the WTO uh, for recourse uh, on on the issue. And I guess there are two ways that there may not be recourse to the World Trade Organization. The first would be if the dispute settlement system collapses uh, because the Americans are undermining it, as we've, we've spoken about in other episodes of Trade Talks. Or the second could be if essentially the U.S. isn't technically breaking any rules by making demands on countries like Indonesia. It's simply saying, you can't take access to our market for granted anymore. We're going to be squeezing these concessions from you. You know, welcome, welcome to this new world. And I do think that was part of the Faustian bargain with the GSP program all along. It was something that was unilaterally granted by the United States as well as other rich countries. And it's at their discretion to possibly take it away whenever they see fit. And this does seem like a general path that we're headed down. It's not just Indonesia that's facing this. It's Turkey. It's India. This just does seem to be a more general trend with the Trump administration. Mari, thank you very much. That is all for Trade Talks. A huge thank you to Mari Pangestu, former Indonesian trade minister and now professor at the University of Indonesia. Thanks also to Colin Warren, who handles our audio. Also, make sure to send us ideas and feedback. We are at email at tradetalkspodcast.com. Do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bound. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when sending a signal about the importance of openness with or without the U.S., two mega regionals are better than one. <laughs>